You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Guys, good morning. How's everybody doing? Yeah, all right. Some excitement. Sunday morning, right? Get the blood pumping a little bit. Get out and get into church. Sing some songs. Uh, It's good to be with you guys. Uh, Emily and I, as many of you know, were traveling this last week, so we didn't get to be with you on Sunday, but we got to go on this really cool adventure uh, to the island of Hawaii. Uh, We got to be on the big island, and it was filled with all sorts of of really fun activities. We hiked through a jungle to waterfalls. We spent some time on the beach. We snorkeled. We saw these huge turtles. We we went to the tallest peak on the big island. We drove up uh, with, like, no guardrails on the, the side, so I was looking down at like 14,000 feet. Uh, but it was really cool. You got to see above the clouds, which is a really cool adventure. So it's a really fun time, restful for us. Uh, but in the middle of all that we were doing, on uh, day five or six, right in that range of our seven-day trip, we were gone for a week, uh, Emily and I both had the same thought at different points. Uh, we mentioned it to each other. We said, we miss our people. We miss our community at home. We miss you guys. Uh, we miss getting to be with you. We miss getting to do life with you and follow Jesus with you and... Uh, yeah, we missed our home and our dog and all of the, the things that God has given us to love and to steward. Uh, so as an affirmation, we like you people. We're glad to be back, uh, and we're glad to, to worship with you this morning. Um, and I, I actually want to start us with a, a story from our trip, uh, because I think it, it connects really well with our sermon series. So one of the days in Hawaii, uh, we visited a volcano that's on the island. And this volcano is not like you tend to picture in cartoons or movies, like one big mountain with a hole in the top that just spews lava out. It's actually this this massive, massive crater. And then within that crater is another crater, and within that crater is another crater. It's this sprawling hole in the ground. And only in like the bottom crater is there actual lava and steam sometimes. Uh, It wasn't when we were there, although a couple days after we were there, it erupted, which is really crazy. Uh, You can go and look it up if you want to see pictures. Uh, But... All that to say, because it's so massive and sprawling, they actually built an entire national park around it. Uh, So if you want to explore it, you have to go into the national park, and they have trails and roads and all sorts of stuff to explore it. And so we ended up going there. Uh, We check in at the guard booth. We pay our our fee to park in the national park. And then they give us a map. And this map, you guys, was awful. It was one of the worst maps I've ever seen. And to be fair, it's a classic thing if there's user error to blame the tool. So maybe I just don't know how to read maps. But it wasn't to scale, first of all. So you had no idea like how far things were in comparison to other things. So I'm a planner. Emily's a planner. We couldn't really plan our day because we're like, we don't really know how long each of these things will take us. And then the labels on the map weren't really like precise. So it wasn't like a clear arrow to say, this is where this is and this is where this is. And so we weren't really sure what the things were. They were all long Hawaiian words. That's my fault for not speaking Hawaiian. I don't understand those words, so that didn't help. And then on top of that, there was no arrow or marker telling us where we were when we got the map. So we didn't know where we were starting. There was no starting point for us. You know how on maps, sometimes they have the sticker that says, you are here? And from that sticker, that's able to help you navigate the rest of the map. They didn't have that. And so Emily and I are trying to figure it out. We're like, You know what, let's just go and discover it on the way. So we drive on the road, and eventually we come upon this outlook, looking out over these huge holes in the ground. We're like, that's a cool picture. Let's go check that out at least. And so we walk up to the edge, take some cool pictures, and then all of a sudden we discover there's a map right on this path. And this map was all the things that that first map wasn't. Uh, It was clear. It was precise. It had uh, all of the, the pieces of the Volcano National Park to scale. 
So I was able to see, okay, if we want to get here, it'll take us this long. If we want to get here, it'll take us this long. So we planned out our day. And more importantly than anything, it told us where we were. It had a you are here sticker. So I could see precisely where I was in relation to the rest of the park, and I was able to plan out the rest of our trips. And then in each additional spot, it told us again where we were. So I was reminded at each point in the volcano uh, where we were, and, and that helped me navigate the rest of the space. Uh, getting clarity on where we stood at that moment helped us to better navigate where we needed to go. That's what maps are supposed to do. That's what they're for. They're supposed to tell you where you are so you can know where you need to go. And we're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called Through the Lens of Grace, looking at the letter of Romans written by a guy named Paul way back in the day. And he keeps returning to this radical notion of grace. And what we learn in our text today is that grace is kind of similar to that you are here sticker or arrow on the map. It tells you where you are. Grace tells you where you are in relationship to God, in relationship to others, in relationship to the world. You are loved by God. That's what grace says. And then from that place, grace also sparks us into where we need to go. It informs us the sorts of lives that we're supposed to live because of the grace we've received. It is the you are here arrow that tells us where we are and where we need to go. So if you have a Bible, open it with me this morning to the book of Romans. It's in the New Testament near the backs of your Bibles if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 if you'd like to follow along. I'll be reading from verses 15 through 23. Uh, We'll have it up on the screen for you as well if you'd like to follow along there. Romans 6, 15 through 23. What then? Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented or just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you get from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So anytime, you guys, that someone stands in front of you and tells you to turn to chapter 6, like I did there, it should immediately spark in you, okay, so we're jumping right into the middle of something, right? Because what comes before 6? 5, and then 4, and then 3, and then 2, and then 1, right? Paul, in writing these words here, is uh, right in the middle of a letter that he's writing to a group of churches in a city called Rome, way back in the day, uh, at the really peak of the Roman Empire. He was writing these words. This was this massive, sprawling city. A million people lived in Rome, likely, around the time that Paul was writing this. And he's writing all of these words, words like sanctification and obedience, grace, uh, faith, righteousness, slaves. He's writing all of those words and they're loaded with context that's already come from what he's written. And so if we just jumped into this without thinking about what Paul has already been unfolding for us, the story that he's already been telling us, then we won't really fully grasp what's happening in chapter 6. And so I want to take us a step back and remember what Paul has already been saying 
through the first five chapters of Romans and how that fits into this bigger story. Because we want to remember that the Bible is also one cohesive story, right? How did Paul understand this big story of God throughout history? So Paul, the guy who wrote these words, he was a Pharisee, which is basically a, a religious leader in first century Judaism. They were people who knew the scriptures really, really well. The Old Testament that we have here, the Hebrew scriptures, they knew that like the back of their hand. They could quote it to you, any passage, if you needed it. And because they knew it so well, they were formed by these scriptures. Their minds and their hearts, they were shaped by how uh, God has unfolded this story over the course of history, over the course of time. And in that story, humans were made by God to live in harmony with all things. At the start of things, God brings life and flourishing into the world, and humans are the ones who are supposed to steward that life and flourishing, the ones who are supposed to care for it and bring new life into the world. They're called the image of God early on in this story, and that's because they are reflecting the creative and life-giving nature of God to the rest of the world. That's the role of humans. They have a distinct purpose in the minds of the scriptures. But in the story, humans don't seem to really like or want that identity. Instead of accepting the identity that God has given them as stewards of life and flourishing, they reject it. And they say, you know what? I hear you, God. I see what you're doing, but I kind of think I can figure it out on my own. I kind of think that life is actually something that I can kind of control. I know good and evil. I know how to function in this world. I know how to bring life, so I'm just going to kind of do it on my own. And so rather than reflecting the image of God that they were given, they reflect a different image, the image of self. And it brings into the world things like sin and death because God is the source of life, right? God is the one who has brought all of life. So if you sever connection with God, well, you bring things that aren't life into the world. That's what humans did. And so when the Bible talks about sin and death and when uh, Paul talks about sin and death, he's thinking of these big powers that humanity has submitted themselves to rather than submitting themselves to God. And it creates a world that's broken. It creates humanity that's broken. And most of us, I think, experience this intuitively, even if we wouldn't call ourselves Christians or if we've kind of been figuring out our faith. Humans inherently have this void. We have this creeping realization in us all the time that life and the world aren't quite the way that they should be. There's something off, and we can't quite put our finger on it all the time, but there's something off. We suffer pain and hardship and just makes us think something's not quite right here. And because of that, humans, over the course of time, have tried to figure out how to solve this problem of brokenness. And they've done that in two major kind of flows, two major responses that humans have had to try to fix the brokenness of the world. The first response is the earning response. We say that escaping brokenness that's in us and around us, we do that by doubling down on earning the right sort of life. We do this in religion a lot. We say, follow these rules, right? Obey these guidelines, live this way, and then brokenness will be healed. If you just do the right things, if you just double down on your earning, then, then you can get the life that you were made for. Then brokenness will go away. And the result of this over human history has been one of two things. Either self-righteousness, people actually believe that they can do this, right? People believe that they can earn the world that they were made for. And so they start to think that, well, if I do the right things, then I get it, right? And if you don't, you don't get it. So there's haves and there's have-nots. It creates these kind of ugly dynamics in many religious spheres and uh, spheres of earning in general. Or it creates a response of shame in people because people end up realizing that they can't obey the standard that they need, right? They realize they break a law or they don't follow the law in the way that they should. They break the rules and therefore are actually bringing about more brokenness. 
And so people either end up self-righteously uh, affirming their own ability or shamefully hiding their inability. That's what the earning response does in us when we try to fix brokenness through earning. And because of that, humans have also come up with a different response, the instinct response. Now, the instinct response is sort of like those choose-your-own-adventure books that we read as a kid. You guys read those? Some of you? You open up the book, you start reading a few pages, and then eventually it comes to a, a decision that you have to make, and the book gives you options for what decision you want to make. And then you get to choose what page you flip to and what that decision will result in. You actually end up defining the story yourself based on your decisions. Your instincts create the story. And many times in these books, there wasn't a good or bad ending or a right or wrong answer. It was just kind of what you chose. It was whatever your instinct said. And we do this when we try to resolve the brokenness in our world as well. We try to say, you know what? That earning response, it creates self-righteousness. It creates shame. So we just kind of need to throw that stuff out. Let's just follow our instincts. Let's just see what we say, right? Just do what seems right to you. And that will bring healing to the brokenness in the world. That will get you to the life that you're looking for. This is common in our day, and ultimately, we become the final authority on whatever the solution is that we want to bring about. We become the ones who define life. And Paul's audience that he's writing to in Romans has people in both of these sorts of categories. He has religious folks that just think, if you just obey the laws that are lined up in this Bible for you, if you just follow those to the, the last dot and iota, then, then life will come. Then God will restore the brokenness in the world. Just follow those things and it will fix it. And there's also people in his audience that lived in a Roman world that was highly focused on human instinct. Romans and, and Greeks at that time had this idea that generally humans could kind of discern it themselves. Philosophically and interpersonally, they could figure out how to bring life and heal the world. Humans could do it through their effort. And so they had gods for all of the ways that they tried to solve brokenness. They had gods for things like money and gods for things like sex. And they believed that if you just uh, appeased those gods, if you just did the right things in relation to those gods, then you could fix what was wrong. Now, we don't have gods, and we don't call those things gods in our world, but we often do the same sorts of things, right? We look at our world and say, ah, this is really, really hard. This life is really, really hard to live, so I'm going I'm to pursue this relationship, and that's going to fix it. Or I'm going to get this promotion, and that, that will fix the problems that I feel, right? We run in this cycle. It's like a hamster on a wheel, constantly trying to get the thing that we never can quite obtain. And each of these flows of thought that Paul is dealing with in his day and that we still deal with today, they're ultimately looking for the same sorts of things. They're looking for freedom from sin and darkness, from death, from brokenness. And then they're looking for discovery of new life on the other side of that brokenness. And yet both these groups, you guys, are missing it. The earning people and the instinct people, they're missing it because human history is one long story of both of those methods failing miserably. Human history is one long story of people saying, I can earn it, we can figure it out on our own, and creating more of a mess than there was to begin with. And people saying, you know what, I can trust my instincts, and all of a sudden, their instincts are a little skewed. We're never quite good enough to earn the life that we want, and we're never quite focused enough to actually have our instincts on the right things. It always ends up skewed for us. And so it's this human condition that Paul brings up in Romans. That's what he talks about in the first couple chapters, this human condition of brokenness. We just can't seem to resolve our issues. But in the middle of that, Paul says there's a different end to the story. We don't have to continue in the same cycle because in the middle of this broken human condition, we learn that God has promised to restore life and flourishing 
as it was back at the start of things. He's promised to give you the human life that you were made for at the beginning, all of us. That's what the story of Jesus tells us. Through Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, the earning folks and the instinct folks all can receive that restored vision of the original life we were made for. They can all become truly human again. They can be made in the image of God once more. And that's what Paul means by grace in Romans. That while humanity was in the middle of this cycle, unable to fix their broken identities and continuing to make a mess of things, God bound himself to humanity in the person of Jesus. And he showed us what true humanity looks like. That's why when we look at Jesus, we're amazed because we're like, that's a life that I want, right? There's something about Jesus that draws us in. It seems like that's what humanity should look like. It's because it is. Jesus gave us this picture of humanity. And then he took on all of the brokenness, all of the death and decay that we have brought about, and he killed it on the cross. That's the whole point. It died, and then he rose again. So he left it in the grave. That world no longer exists. It's now the world of Jesus, this world of new life and restoration. An alternative to earning and instinct has arrived. And there's only one catch. You can't get it on your own. You can't get there because of earning or because of your instincts. This is a foundational reality that governs the Christian faith. People are freed from the brokenness in their lives and given restored identities purely by a thing called grace, the free gift of God to all of us. And that's what Paul unfolds in these first five chapters, the condition of humanity in all of these different ways that we've messed up the world, and then what Jesus has done about it, how Jesus has given us this free gift. There's a really good quote by a guy named Frederick Buechner in his book Beyond Words uh, that sums this up well. A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. I like what he does here with emphasizing different words. He says there's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do, and there's nothing you have to do. He says the same thing over and over, but he puts different emphasis on each word. To hammer this home, there's nothing you have to do to get this grace. Jesus has given it to you. And so if you're in this room and you felt crippled in your life by striving to earn the life that you want, by living and doing all the right things in the right order, if you felt crippled by that and weighed down by that, good news for you. You can receive Jesus today. You can receive the grace that he has for you, and you can live the human life you were made for. And if you're in this room and your instincts have let you down, you've followed your instincts and you've gotten into situations that haven't actually brought you the life you've wanted, that have perpetuated more brokenness, there's good news for you. You can receive Jesus. You can receive true, real humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Healing from brokenness is here. Life and flourishing is here. We don't have to go with the status quo. We don't have to continue in this cycle of humanity that's existed for as long as we can remember. We can live a different way. We can live in the middle of God's love. He has a restored humanity for you. And all you need to do is receive it. So that's what Paul's done in the first five chapters. And that's a really sweet message, right? It's something that just allows us to breathe out, right? Gives us peace. We get to experience the love of Jesus. So why does Paul keep writing, right? Seems like five would be a pretty good place to end it if that's where he ends the message. Well, he keeps writing because in the ancient world, letters took a little while to get back to people. And he knew that the people he was writing to 
were instinct people and were uh, earning people. They were people whose frameworks for life didn't match up with this idea of grace. Grace was this entirely new thing to them. And so he knew they'd have questions. He knew they'd have objections. He knew that this wouldn't sit immediately right with them. And so that's what he does in chapter 6. He brings up a couple questions. He starts in 6, chapter 1, with one question and then responds to that one. And then where we started today in verse 15, he asks another question. This is a rhetorical device he's using. He's thinking about what his audience is going to say in response to this message of grace. And he's trying to help them sift through those questions right away. This is a, a brilliant rhetorical device. It's called using an interlocutor, which is a fancy word for a dialogue partner. Interlocutor is kind of an annoying word to keep saying. So we're just going to call his interlocutor Arthur. He's talking to Arthur. That's what's hanging out. Uh, he's, he's hanging out with his buddy Arthur, and his buddy Arthur hears this question of grace, and so he says, oh, that's nice. I like that message. And Arthur is an instinct kind of guy. He's the kind of guy who says, you know, I, I think my desires are kind of good, and I feel like I can figure it out on my own. But I also like this idea of grace, and I know I sometimes mess up, so well, can't I have both? That's Arthur's response, right? He's like, if grace is really a free gift from God and I don't have to do anything, well, then why don't I just receive that and keep living the way I live? And if I mess up, then I'm good, right? Grace is already given to me. I can kind of live how I want and still get the grace that Jesus has for me. That's the objection that Paul brings up in verse 15 here. Now, Arthur is seeing God's grace not as something that frees him from a broken life into a new life because he actually thinks his life is pretty decent right now. He's instead believing that God's grace lets him off the hook so he can just keep doing what he wants. That God's grace is actually just approving of everything he does, that that's what grace means. Grace means you're good and nothing you do or don't do matters, right? We've just given you the grace and you're off the hook. And that response at first can seem decent. In our lives and for Arthur, it can seem like, oh yeah, I'm receiving grace, I love Jesus, right? But if Arthur's life and our lives, if we have a similar objection, if Arthur's life doesn't begin to look more like Jesus, little by little, if his life continues to be ruled by his own instincts, then he hasn't actually prioritized Jesus at all. He's instead maintained that old, self-focused and broken identity and slapped Jesus on top of it and said, but I'm good to go. He's remained internally focused on his desires and those are what are driving him. He's still mainly concerned with justifying his current mode of living. He does, he's not interested in actually seeing a new life come from that grace. And so Paul, in this passage, is making a crucial distinction for us when it comes to living in grace, as we do as Christians. So yes, you can only receive grace. There's nothing you can do to earn grace. But that grace that God has for us involves an entirely new identity. It involves living an entirely different sort of life that's shaped by Jesus and not shaped by our instincts or our earning. And so for us to say, thanks for the free life, Jesus, I'm good to go. Thanks for giving me eternal life. I'll get to be with you in heaven and it'll be great. Now I'm going to keep living how I want. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the life that Jesus is freeing you into. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the humanity that we were made for. Karl Barth puts it this way in his epistle to the Romans. He says, grace, then, means neither that men can or ought to do something, nor that they can or ought to do nothing. Grace simply means that God does something. That's what grace refers to, right? It doesn't leave us in a state of either paralysis or needing to re-earn things. It doesn't leave us in those spaces. And so our response to the grace of God when we receive Jesus isn't, 
So can I still get away with this thing? And is this part of my instincts? This is still good, right? I can still, I can still do this. Like, this is fine. That shouldn't be our immediate question, right? Because we are trusting that the grace that Jesus has given us should free us into an entirely new sort of living, a sort of living that frees us from the brokenness of our world. And so instead of asking, can we still get away with things, our question should be, how does grace lead me into the life that I was made for? How does grace lead me to a life that looks more like Jesus, to a truly human life? And so the rest of Paul's words here are functionally a response to our boy Arthur. Paul explains in the rest of this passage that grace gives us a new identity, but because of that identity, our lives become different. From this reception of grace, things start to change in us. And that happens because the Spirit of God changes our innermost desires. That when we receive Jesus, all of a sudden the things we were interested in before and the things we prioritized before change. That's why in verse 17, uh, our hearts are transformed. This is uh, letting the teaching sink into the deepest parts of our being and letting it change us. And Paul at this point uses an analogy that can be a little tough for us to hear. He actually admits that it's an imperfect analogy here. He uses the analogy of slavery. He says that in a previous life, we were slaves to sin, and in receiving grace, we're now slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. And I know that's a hard thing for us to hear because slavery for us is really an oppressive and abusive thing, right? That's really the only framework we have for it. And in Paul's day, it was also a fairly oppressive and abusive thing. And so Paul even knows that this analogy is imperfect. So I want to make very clear, Paul is not saying that when you start to follow God, all of a sudden you become subject to an abusive ruler. That's not what he's saying here, even though that's what we picture when we think of slavery. That's why in 19 he says, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm trying to give a human reality to a, or a human language to a heavenly reality. Trying to give verbiage that makes sense to you in the way that you can understand. Because this is so beyond our, our worldly frameworks. And so, at this point, he's emphasizing not that we become subject to abuse as slaves to God, but instead he's emphasizing the fact that no matter what we do with our lives, we will always serve something. No matter what we do, whether we keep living the way we are right now, right, whether we keep living in our brokenness or whether we allow Jesus to transform us, in both scenarios, you are serving something. I've got an example here that I think will be helpful. Uh, toothbrushes. You guys brush your teeth? Uh, a couple people didn't raise their hands, so I'm concerned. If you smell bad breath near you, uh, let people know, remind them. It's important to brush your teeth, right? It's good to brush your teeth. Now, we don't typically think of ourselves as serving our toothbrushes, right? We think our toothbrushes serve us. But in reality, I choose to subject twice a day for about two minutes myself to my toothbrush. I choose to serve it, right? The toothbrush governs me for those two minutes. And I do that because I know that healthy gums and teeth come on the other side of serving my toothbrush. Now, I could choose not to serve my toothbrush. I could choose to leave it, right, and say, I want to be free from my toothbrush. But if I did that, then I will end up serving bad teeth and cavities. And I'll end up living a life that isn't really the best for my mouth. I'll have pain. I'll have to go to dentist appointments. It will be a much worse life for me. And in that situation, I end up serving those things because they end up ruling me. So either I serve my toothbrush or I don't, but I serve something. And one of those leads to true good gums, true good life, and one of those doesn't. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that no matter what you do, you're going to serve something. And one of them is going to lead to life, and the other one is not. And so the earning folks, they serve that strict code or law 
And the result of that, Paul says, is death, shame and self-righteousness, really unhealthy living. And the instinct folks, they act like they don't serve anything, right? They act like, you know what, I'm free from all those. I, I choose my life. But in reality, they're just serving themselves. They're subservient to their instincts, right? They're still serving something. And Paul says the end of that life is death. And the Jesus followers, they serve Jesus. And what we learn about serving Jesus is that the end of that life is not death. It's life starting here and continuing into eternity. It's a transformed mode of living. And so to help us make the most informed decision, Paul looks at the ends of these things. He's saying one of these leads to death, the other one leads to life. And when Paul says death here, he's not just referring to physical death, though that is a part of what he's getting at here, that ultimately death will come for all of us, and that if we continue to live in this way, eternal life won't be ours. But he is also bringing up the fact that death pervades our world right now. We don't have to actually physically die to experience things like hatred and violence, things like greed and envy, parts of our lives that we know are ugly and bad, right, that only bring destruction. Paul's saying that if you continue to serve uh, the earning mentality or you continue to serve the instinct mentality, you're going to get stuff like that. You're going to get greed and lust and pride, and that's going to govern your life, and that leads to death. You're made for more than that. But when we choose uh, the identity of following Jesus, when we receive what he's done, there's another end that happens for us. He uses a fancy word called sanctification here, which makes very little sense even to people who have studied this a long time. Sanctification is like this big, fancy word uh, that when you read it in English can be a little intimidating. The Greek word that's used here is functionally just talking about the process of becoming fully human, the process of becoming good again, as we were made to be at the start of things. And the important thing there is that it's a process. It happens uh, little by little over the course of our lives. The Spirit of God starts to change our heart, and it picks out one part, and it picks out another part, and it says, okay, this is a little skewed. Let's work on this for the next couple weeks, couple months, couple years. And then there's this other thing. Let's work on this. And people who have followed Jesus for a while can tell you at certain points in their life, there was something that was really hard for them. And now it's not as hard, but now there's a different thing, right? Now there's a different thing that God is working on in their lives. That's what sanctification looks like. But in every situation, it's always ending up to be the life that we were made for. It's always making us look more like Jesus. That's the point. And so instead of things like hatred and violence and racism, we get things like well, peace, patience in our dealings with one another, kindness in our interactions, generosity in our lives rather than hoarding and scarcity, self-control over our desires rather than running rampant over our desires. Harmony in the world comes when we follow this Jesus, when we receive this grace. And so friends, grace is not a thing that just lets you off the hook. That's not what grace is. We want to make sure that we don't end up like Arthur. Instead, grace changes the way we live and the sort of people we become. And I've got an image that I think will help with this. Uh, many of you, at some point in your life, I'm sure, have been to a wedding. It's a party, everyone's hanging out, and at one point in the ceremony, uh, the minister has the power to name this couple as married or not, right? They've said their vows, they've exchanged their rings, they've done all the cordial and traditional things. And then the minister, because of the authority that he has, or she, the authority that they have up there, from the state, from a church, they're able to say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. This is a reality. This is true about you. You are here, right, on the map. And at that point, that minister has that authority. Sometimes there's documents that get signed to, to like 
make that happen. But regardless, the ceremony indicates that to us. But the couple doesn't just stay there, right? The couple has to walk back down the aisle and into their lives, and they spend, hopefully, decades together learning what it means to be husband and wife. The reality didn't change for them, right? They were husband and wife as soon as the minister said it. But they have to learn how to live out that husband and wife reality. Their identities were changed, and because of that, their lives start to change. That's what grace does in us. We receive Jesus. We become new sorts of people, beloved by God. And because of that, we live different sorts of lives. And so the question Paul raises for us and for Arthur is not whether we will serve, but what we will serve. Which identity are you going to let govern your life? Are you going to allow the earning identity and the instinct identity to govern your life? Are you going to allow the identity that you received in Jesus to govern your life? So let's return to that map that Emily and I saw on the volcano. And let's make it a map of your life right now. You walk up to this map, and right away you notice a big arrow and sticker. It says, you are here. That is Jesus telling you where you are located. You are in the love of God. You are beloved by the God of the universe. You are saved. That's your status, and nothing can change that. In the same way that the minister declared it for the husband and wife, God has declared it for you. And now, once you've identified that that's where you're standing, you take a look at the rest of the map, and you're seeing all sorts of things you want to explore. You've got kids to raise. You've got work to do. You've got character to cultivate in yourself. You've got relationships to manage. The map of your life is huge and sprawling, like that huge crater in the ground. But since you know where you are now, since you know you're in the love of God, you've been given the way forward. Because everywhere you travel, that you are here sticker goes with you. You are always there with Jesus. So because of Jesus, when you hit a trail on the map that's steep and hard, you can walk it with endurance and hope. And when you see a pristine view in your life, when you see something beautiful, you can take it in with praise and gratitude. When you see others walking around without a map, you can invite them to walk with you. You can invite them to the reality that you're living with love and kindness. That's the beauty of grace, you guys. It gives us the transformed life that we were waiting for. And Jesus is offering us all the chance to step into a life that's really, truly human. We're all going to serve something, you guys. It's up to us what that something is going to be. Let's pray.